welcome to the first ever episode 10 of our podcast, Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and as always, we're coming to you live from London in the heart of Fintech in Level 39. I'm joined by my colleagues at 11FS, Jason Bates, Simon Taylor, and Chris Skinner. We've got an absolutely huge show for you today, talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, bots, natural language processing, and pretty much everything augmented. We've got some huge guests coming up. We have from IBM Watson, David Kathapar. From Scalable Capital, we have Eleanor Rabia. And from Ravelin, we have Aurelia Ran. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody who has made this podcast a success so far. We've been downloaded now in over 70 countries and managed this week to get into the top 30 business podcasts on iTunes. A big part of this is obviously your downloads, your support, but also the five-star reviews that we're seeing popping up on iTunes. So thank you very much to John Mingley, Slimmer Now, Rob White, Maznikov, RJ Number One, Nine Pine, and Matty Bingo. Keep the five-star reviews coming, and we'll keep giving you guys shout-outs. Right, let's get into it with what's been happening in the news this week. Thank you very much, everybody, for, for joining us. Real pleasure for, for having everybody here. And actually, we've got a pretty big podcast today, both in terms of the amount of people that are here and, uh, and I imagine the duration that this one's probably going to go for as well. So strap in for your, to your seats here, guys. We're we probably going to the audience in like the first five seconds. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I think um, maybe implementing chapters in this one might be yeah. a, a decent thing to do. So well, it's first five-hour fintech podcast. Yeah, we've got you for three days here. Your commute is covered. <laughs> exactly, like mar- marathon podcasts. That might, might, might become a thing. But if we could get sponsorship for a marathon podcast, that would be fine. You know, like maybe per minute, so that would be quite a good thing. Fintech buster. I like it. It's a good idea. I like, like what you did there. Um, maybe if we, because there's so many of us, if we just kick around the room quickly just to make sure everybody knows everybody's voice. So, should we start? Hi, I'm Devika and I work at IBM Watson leading our business development efforts for the financial services sector. Hi, I'm Ereli. I'm a data scientist at Ravelin working on fraud detection for payment industry. Hi, I'm Ella. I'm the CMO and uh, UK co-founder of Scalable Capital, a new online investment manager that launched in the UK a couple of months ago. Fantastic. Hopefully by now you'll know Chris, Simon, uh, myself and Jason's voice, so uh, hopefully we won't have to introduce ourselves uh, too Unless much. we impersonate each other. We can give it a go, just to be really awkward. <laughs> Hi, my name's David. <laughs> is, that, is that what I sound like? No? Uh, That's, it wasn't nasal enough, sorry. Thanks, <laughs> appreciate it. Anyway, let's get into the news then. So there's been a, a huge amount sort of happening, and particularly with the focus this week being on, on artificial intelligence. And uh, there's a, an amazing thing happening in that space. But actually, if we probably go to the one story that isn't AI-related initially, which is a quite of a, a big deal. So we've seen... In the IB Times today, we've got Barclays completes world's first live end-to-end trades finance transaction. Simon, I think you're probably going to want to tell us more about this one. Yeah, have podcast will gloat. No, um, I, I, I think this one really is a credit to a lot of folks at uh, Barclays and a credit to a lot of folks uh, at a small company called Wave. So the question about this whole blockchain space for the longest time is great, but when? And there, to see somebody do a real live transaction is, is a watershed moment. This is really, truly significant. Somebody has actually done an end-to-end transaction using this technology, which means it's nearly ready for live. It, the next question is, how do I, how do I scale it? I know it works. How do I scale it? And so the significance here is, you know, trade finance, the cost of the, uh, FedEx and moving paper around the world every year is estimated to be 40 billion US dollars. 
And then that's not including the fraud. That's not including all of the risk of losing a piece of paper. So this is a highly, highly inefficient uh, system that manages everything from how bananas move around the world to fabric to coal to oil and everything in between. So this is a really important piece of world trade, relying on a piece of paper that can be forged. So the first step towards digitizing that should be hugely, hugely significant. And I think um, just very briefly, congratulations to all those guys. And I think we've seen in the past couple of weeks, Chris, you mentioned there was a few trade finance initiatives coming out from the blockchain space. And, uh, you know, there's Bank of America and, and a few other guys did, did their own with HSBC. There was the R3 one. And now we're getting live transactions. It feels like the first use case has been picked. Here. I think the key thing to qualify that one is it's live transaction with clients, corporate clients. It's not between b- bank counterparties. Because there have been quite a few transactions with bank counterparties on blockchain. But this is the first one that's actually inc- included a customer. <laughs> yeah, a real live customer on a real live system. And, and I think that's, that's a watershed moment. So that was basically my point. I think it's great. You know, I, I remember sort of saying to you at the time type thing, is this the, do we start sort of talking not in sort of future tense of, of kind of blockchain and everything, all the potential, but actually this is the emergence of real wholesale uh, mm. use cases in real world today. So, I think we're kind of in the trough of disillusionment with blockchain because it's been hyped up so much, but it's not really delivered anything yet. And so now we're seeing the start of things being delivered mm-hmm. um, and R3 and Wave are you know, illustrations of that. You know, Soon we'll start seeing lots more use cases being delivered and people actually wake up and say, oh, this is quite serious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually doing something. I think that's hugely significant. And it's a pleasure for me because many of you will know I was at Barclays when this all kicked off. And so it's it's a real pleasure to see the folks there continue. Wasn't your project? It might have been. Oh, my God. It might realize. have been. It yes. might have been. It wasn't obvious. It, it, did, it show, <laughs> did it show I had anything like that going on? No, but what's – yeah, uh, flexing the guns there, David, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was just a proud dad moment. Yeah, like, it really is. Just, it's, 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 you can't see this, listeners, but I've gone beat red. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, but, but I think, you know, big, big congratulations to everybody at Barclays on that one. Look forward to uh, seeing a lot more of, uh, from that to uh, that to come. So maybe if we move on and, and kind of go into the, uh, the, you know, the guts of what we're, we're here today is to talk about is AI. Um, there's a really interesting story actually coming out of uh, QZ.com. Um, and this is about Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, Microsoft creating the Justice League of AI. And now kind of, you know, given that we've sort of done quite a lot as the sort of fintech Avengers thing, I found, A, the picture quite compelling in this one in terms of what they were doing. But the idea that all of these companies are sort of coming together was, was you know, quite an interesting one. What, what's your thoughts on that? Riding coattails is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did this first. Right? Yeah. I think the key thing is um, when you talk to a lot of the banks today about what's exciting, then they normally cite two things, which is machine learning and blockchain. And then... As we just said, you know, with blockchain and distributed ledgers, they'll say, well, that's a bit of a way away, particularly as it's shared industry infrastructures that take a long time to, to, to develop. So machine learning you can do right now today. And a lot of the banks are doing that with Watson and other projects. And it's actually giving them leverage because half the issue is that no one uses, uses their data. The other half of the issue is that even if they are using their data, they're not using it effectively. And what we're seeing now is this Justice League of machine learning capability from the Googles and others coming together to give something that's probably real big guns to, for data usage. And what's key, I guess we've got one of the league with us. Mm-hmm. So where does IBM sit in the league? Which which country are you? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it like a league where somebody's at the top of the league? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was that was my question at the start. I was like, is it Superman? <laughs> Judge Grinder. Oh no. <laughs> 
But do you have any sort of uh, background or sort of insight to, to what's going on here? Yeah, I think so. Traditionally, we've been using AI in financial services for many years, and that's mostly in the stock trading point of view. But I think when you look at IBM Watson, it takes a very different approach because it's taking into consideration not just that set of data, but it's taking into consideration a much bigger set of data, and and we call that unstructured data which is all about that facet of AI around natural language processing. So how can banks and other financial services companies make use of all that information out there using, you know, computing powers and, and intelligent computers to process all that information, which can then therefore drive, you know, hopefully better decision making at the front end. So whether that's the wealth manager or the customer service rep or whoever that might be. I know we're going to explore this more in depth, but have we got to the point where AI has reached the Turing test success pass level or are we still a long way away from it go, go, go deep on questions right <laughs> yeah right. that's straight i didn't expect in, that straight in <laughs> it depends i guess it depends on what your turing test would be mm. and and i guess that's important to see because if you're applying a turing test from in a chatbot perspective that would be very different from a turing test in a wealth management context or in an underwriting context. Because in a chatbot context, your Turing test could just be, can my bot answer questions as effectively as a contact center rep? Which is probably pretty easy to do right now. Or which may not even be necessarily the right thing to do because yeah. are you trying to replicate the human or are you trying to make it good, make it different, mm -hmm. make it a machine? Yeah. So it, I think it, it, the usual answer, it depends. Okay, I'm just seeing Microsoft's Twitter account AI, but anyway. Mm. But, but I guess it's interesting that this story in particular was looking at um, those companies coming together to form a body of governance to create industry standards around ethical artificial intelligence, which again takes it that sort of step further of it might not be as, you know, might not be like the person in the call center, but it might be super subtly trying to sell you a whole host of things that it can't be done uh, using the data from the best salespeople in the world. And, you know, is that is that the right thing to do? Or is this ethics about Skynet and taking over the world? Like, how, how big an E is there on the front of this? And where does IBM sit? I think so. So the one place where we do definitely sit is the, the whole debate around man versus machine and man and machine has existed through, like, every technology transition. And IBM Watson's view is definitely around man and machine. So how can you use these technologies to actually help us do what we do better or augment our capabilities rather than replacing jobs. So I would think that the ethical standpoint here is also from being able to harness all the work that we're doing in this space in the right way, whatever that might be, rather than the Skynet Terminator vision. <laughs> Damn it, my sci-fi fantasies are uh, falling away as you speak. So. What about you guys? I mean, you're obviously, you know, both um, Scalable Capital and Ravelin use machine learning technologies arguably to, to, to mean that you don't need those people and actually can give a great service, you know, at a lower price. Well, you know, is there an ethics question to that? Well, I think our clients don't, don't see it as replacing humans from the equation. So we, we are trying to build a system to make the human more effective. So when we build machine learning, we're trying to replicate tasks that humans are really good at and make it just more scalable for companies that need scale but cannot do a lot of manual work. I do, I do feel we need to break that down into sci-fi terms then. So we're talking more like Universal Soldier than, than Terminator, right? We're talking about kind of augmented <laughs> people and making people the best people that they can be as opposed to replacing them with, with bots or AI or whatever. 
Yeah, I think I think that's a better that's a better compa- that's a <laughs> much better. Quite yeah. like that. Thanks, thanks yeah. for triggering me with the yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you can you can mention a little bit about what Ravelin does because I, I guess we haven't had some. Of that. Yeah, so Ravelin is, is a fraud prevention platform and a detection tool. So it has multiple facets. Uh, we try to build a dashboard for analysts to look at the data and try to, when they manually review a case, to do the best job. At the same time, we try to build machine learning-based detection to alleviate the need to manually review hundreds and and thousands of of, uh, cases, which is not scalable for the on-demand economy, where many of our clients are trying to do business in real time. So when you're ordering food or a taxi or any kind of service that needs to be delivered within minutes, you don't have time to stop and review that person. So the machine learning aspect needs to be explainable. So if, if an analyst wants to review manually, they need to understand exactly why a machine decided as it did. But at the same time, our clients want a sort of hands-off approach. For 99% of the clients, they feel no impact of the fact that there's a system reviewing them. And but but is, is it not a thing with machine learning that for some decisions, you can't tell why the machine selected, selected that thing for fraud? So... So we chose algorithms that are easily explainable. So some of the choices we make is to, is to build a system where we can actually give that information. But we try to say to replicate a human's decision. So if a human could make a decision, then we don't have expectations that the machine will do a better job in the sense that sometimes you have to call the person and actually verify some identity details or card details. So there's not enough, not everything can be automated, but it's worth choosing the parts that are automated to, to, improve, to improve the process. I think it, it brings into perspective, uh, to add to that, what the thing that as humans, we're good at certain things like common sense, empathy. Well, <laughs> some humans. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from some of us. Yeah. Be Namely males. <laughs> um, goal setting and things like that, or a sense of self. Whereas computers are, and machines are, have typically been good at pattern recognition, at logic, yeah. or and speed at doing things at speed and scale. So how can you marry the two uh, to create a better outcome? It's, and it's a, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this later on, but it's a very different type of learning that we're actually trying to push into machines. And it's, yeah, like I say, it's not strangely way of putting it, but it's not natural in the way that that actually processing works. Is it, it is much more of a binary view of actually the world than, than actually what we're trying to put in, which is sort of learned behavior through patterns, which isn't the same. Well, so there's an interesting example from, sorry, here we go, but there's an interesting example also in FB LearnerFlow. So I don't know if you've read how Facebook machine learning algorithm works, but essentially the example they give is that they say, well, um, we're going to give you some numbering, this algorithm capability, and we're going to give you some pictures of flowers, and we're going to give you some correct answers. But we're going to give you far more pictures of flowers than correct answers we've given you. And therefore, you would, you as an algorithm then have to figure out what a flower is based on a few correct answers, but not all of them. Historically, the machine would have been given a lot of correct answers, and you know there was a lot of manual work for the programmers to do. Now the algorithm is figuring out a lot more by itself. So it, it is sort of learning to a certain degree. There is an element of you know, it's taken some inputs and it's learned. I think it's fair. I, I don't know. I love the video of Google DeepMind and what they were doing with video games and giving them sort of nineteen eighties video games to play, like Tetris. And the machine within sixteen hours, it's unbeatable, you know, which is far better than the human when they're playing. Mm-hmm. So it kind of is learning to the extent that re- repeatable tasks that can be done more accurately by a machine than a human makes far more sense, really. Yeah, and I think when when the projects that we see most successful 
in 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 Facebook or in Google uh, with our where a computer is given a very specific task. Mm. So uh, not the general purpose sort of all encompassing AI, but a specific task. And with enough data, and these companies uh, have have huge amounts of data that is part of their I think advantage in this market. Uh, and th- when you choose a specific problem with enough data, then the human label data or or general data, then you can actually achieve is really good result. Um, so, uh, Ella from Scale Capital, I guess you know you've got a very specific use case in terms of helping people make a ton of more money with their investments. How does machine learning fit into that? So what we do, I wouldn't, I wouldn't directly call it machine learning because we actually still go in with a set of assumptions. So we, we, we work with so-called gauge models. So we still make certain assumptions about the stochastic processes that we use to model financial markets behavior, just different from machine learning where you basically let the machine figure out the patterns in the data that you're working with. I think the reason why machine learning for our particular area is a little bit challenging is because machine learning is always good when you don't have that much noise in the data as we just discussed but unfortunately with financial markets you do have a lot of a lot of noise around the data so for picture recognition for example machine learning is probably much more suitable than for the area where we are in at least for now so it doesn't mean that it doesn't have to uh, couldn't change in the future but for now we're really working with an algorithm but i wouldn't really call it machine learning but what we definitely do, we get a lot of questions from clients that are that are obviously concerned about a potential lack of human intervention in there. But what we always say is, you know, that there are two areas where human intervention is still very relevant. Number one is obviously we decide what that model and that algorithm looks like. We decide in the end how we how we um, use use the parameters, how we define the parameters in the model. But number two is also that in our case, the algorithm isn't directly making the trading decisions or executing the trading decisions. So we still have a team of financial engineers that basically look at the output from the algorithm and sort of just double check all the trading recommendations. And then they would enter it into our trading system. So there's very much an element of human control in there. And also, obviously, if, if clients want to call us, they want to talk to somebody, we, we're always there. We're not robots, even though we're called a robo-advisor. <laughs> we're actually, we're neither robots apart from a robo-vacuum cleaner <laughs> in our you office. You will not lose your money. Sorry? <laughs> Nothing, I'm just being a robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're, like, we're, we're actually neither robots, nor are we actually offering advice. So the term robo-advisor is really um, uh, wrong in, in both ways. Banks have got into misspelling problems really badly about naming mm. things. So, you know, yeah. So we, we'd rather like to call ourselves an online investment manager or a digital investment manager. That's that's really what we do. So is, what, you, is what you're doing kind of a next generation from neural networking, which people were talking about a lot 15 years ago? Or do you think we've moved much further than that? For our area, you mm. mean? Well, it's hard to tell. I think I think the models that we're using right now, the, the stochastic sort of processes or the models, the Gauch model behind that, it, it, it it's quite old already. Um, I think what's really new in terms of what we're bringing to the table is that we that we really use it in that area where we're using it right now. Because a lot of traditional advisors, but also newer in, investment managers, still use you know what is called modern portfolio theory, which was basically invented in the fifties, and which uses a lot of simplifying assumptions about how financial markets work, for example, normally distributed returns, um, when in reality, we know that financial markets just don't behave like that. So we basically see, you know, much bigger deviations in prices on a daily basis than a normal distribution would allow for. But because we have cloud computing now and computing power has become so much cheaper, we can now work with a model where we don't need to work with a normal distribution assumption because we can basically work with a, with a Gotch model. That is a more complicated model, but uh, much more closer, allows for much more closer reflection of reality. And what's particularly helpful for our clients is that while you can't predict returns, you can actually predict risk in your portfolio to a certain extent. 
So if today is a very volatile day in the markets, for example, the, the chances that tomorrow is a very volatile day again are way higher than 50%. And you can use that information to adjust a client's portfolio accordingly to make sure that the that the risk in the portfolio is never higher than what the client So if you take something like be. the 23rd of June Brexit vote, did you see something interesting happening around that time? It, well, what, what we are actually seeing with risk in the market is that usually it builds up over time. So you very rarely have events unless they're externally induced and don't come from the financial markets itself, like 9-11 or so, or, or, or a disaster. What you normally see is that volatility starts to pick up in the markets for quite some time. Um, so you rarely have an event where the markets are very quiet and all of a sudden there's very high volatility in the markets. And the same for Brexit, actually. Of course, on that day, there were huge movements in the market, but already in the months leading up to the event, volatility picked up already at the end of last year actually volatility was quite high and we reacted to that by allocating a lot of our clients out of equities not altogether but you know depending on their risk category but overall our clients were um, were not very much invested in into equities at the time of, of the brexit vote which worked in their favor but it wasn't like us predicting the brexit vote would end the way it did yeah so, so, but that's basically the, the, it's just the, minimizing the risk. behavior, the behavior we, we are using or we exploiting for our clients is really that volatility typically picks up over time. And therefore you can work with the historical data to predict what it's going to be like tomorrow or in a week or in a month. I did say we're going to go long on this, but uh, 22 minutes <laughs> Sorry on, for that. on question three, <laughs> awesome. So, far in terms of doing it. so uh, but yeah, no, it's really, really insightful stuff. Uh, moving on to the next one that we've got, we've got a, a really interesting MIT report coming on uh, technology review that says, and I, and I think you know we were speaking with Alex Lipton from MIT this week, but even for you know an MIT professor putting out a uh, an article that says AI wants to be your bro, not your phone, this sort of seems slightly uh, slightly be a, sort of beneath MIT slightly in this one, but uh, but. Simon, interesting article. So I read this headline and I was like, um, Al wants to be your bro, not your foe. And I'm like, Al seems nice. I, <laughs> I, I should meet Al. Turns out, no, it's actually talking about a, a study that apparently MIT are going to do progressively every year for the next hundred years, which is quite a commitment. <laughs> Basically, that in a nutshell, artificial intelligence will transform just about everything. But technologists should stop fretting that it's going to destroy the world like Skynet from the Terminator movies. So there is this idea that AI is this sentient, uh, living thing, this, this human-like set of, um, you know, knowledge and feelings that's going to control all of the computer systems in the world and do bad things for us. And the reality is we're still a long, 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 long way from that. But the, you know, self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, you know, these are really cool things, but they are, as, as, as you were saying, that they were they're very monoline that one specific task is what they do very very well say that until we've got self-driving tanks and then you see we're in a very different space <laughs> indeed <laughs> but that's all the tank can do it can't be connected to everything else necessarily from from a sentient ai and, and i think that's the point they're making here which is look this is really impressive stuff but let's take the fear and and some of the hype out of it and let's focus on business value which i think is is an important thing to consider it's like that robot that ran out of the lab in Russia. I don't know if you've read about it. And all it did was create a traffic jam. <laughs> oh. Sorry, a, a robot ran out of our lab? Uh, like, you need to maybe explain that. Yeah. That, that sounds amazing. That's, amazing. That's, That's a better headline than Al wants to be. It was called Machina and was escaping. But anyway. But it's part of the problem here. You know, we talk about blockchain. We talk about machine learning and AI. And these are just phenomenally complex subjects that are just mm. rarely understood by almost anyone. 
yet easily thrown about terms. You know, and suddenly you go, you see a startup that has five customers is talking about machine learning where it doesn't have any data. Like, there's no way on earth it could possibly do anything with that. It's and analytics. Yet, and yet there's hardly anyone around who could can call them on it. Um, you know, is that not a fundamental problem that there are some really big industry-changing trends where actually the majority industry doesn't, doesn't... I mean, what is the definition of artificial intelligence versus machine learning versus... versus algorithms or Bayesian yeah. statistics or whatever is the model. Deep data thing. analytics. Yeah. yeah. So I think AI is is a really trending term. And I think when you demystify it, uh, underlying, there's, there's, it's more like, it's more suitable for science fiction and for movies than for, for products. Now, you can still use it. Obviously, it's very helpful for business, but it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but when, when we work uh, on, on machine learning, we actually, look at the, at the problems in a very sort of concrete way. And there's a really good talk by Professor Amnon Shashua, who works on the, on the self-driving car features for a company called Mobileye. And uh, I think, I think there was a story last week that uh, Tesla is not going to use Mobileye solution anymore. And it's interesting because Mobileye's uh, approach to, to doing self-driving cars is breaking down the problem of doing the entire and the car needs to drive itself. They're very smaller problems. So they started with one feature, which is, can you detect if a car is going to depart from its lane? Then they added uh, sign recognition and stop sign recognition and pedestrian recognition. And then they added animal recognition because pedestrian animals are a bit different. And once you have all these features, then you can have this a solution. But it needs a very, very slow process and to collect um, you know, terabytes of, of video data labeled i think there's something about you know what tesla are doing is i'm sorry to use a sports analogy but it's like the top of the the league you know it's the top of the premiership these are the best of the best of the best and actually most businesses aren't there that you're not going to be a google or a facebook or an ibm or a revelin or scalable doing these things so you have to be very targeted when you use it and actually for most businesses as the americans would say blocking and tackling is more important or getting the basics right there's probably far more you can do from understanding your data getting access to your data structuring it properly and analyzing it and if there's so much business value that could be gotten from doing that first then you can move forward to machine learning but i think there are some examples like for example the fraud detection where machine learning is so so targeted and and so so well used that actually that's going to work for anybody if if they buy it as a solution so i think that's probably where the hype comes from in my own i think it's also to do with you know, these technologies have been developing for a long, long time. I mean, I mentioned neural networking that goes back to the nineties and artificial intelligence has been, you know, discussed since the age of how in, mm-hmm. in the 1960s. And it's really, it's not the technology itself. It's the people who use the technologies that are threatening. So it's not the technology that's threatening at all. Mm-hmm. And what, what you end up with is that you get the criminals and the guys who wanted to use these things for bad things starting first normally. And then the, uh, the white hats come in and the other guys come in and lock them down and squeeze them out. I think it's also interesting sort of IBM's approach on, you know, or, or even Google, you know, Google picks, you know, beating uh, the, the world's best player at Go. Um, you know, IBM sort of previously had chosen winning at Jeopardy, but actually then breaking that down into being able to understand the questions, structure the knowledge, you know, do a very fast lookup. How do you even structure all of those answers? It seems that actually you picked a sort of a question and answer format that was not only something that could be tested and was real world, but would spin off all kinds of other things is does the the work that was done on beating you know winning at jeopardy does that translate into businesses 
Absolutely. I think we've learned a lot, though, since when we first began. So I think when we played Jeopardy, it was 2011. And since then, we've come a long way in terms of our go-to-market. So, for instance, we've made Watson available as a set of services on the cloud. And all those set of services are all around being able to help businesses and all kinds of businesses, small, large, uh, and us as users, understand speech, understand language, analytics, and understand vision. The premise began with with Q&A, but that's because um, what Watson's really good at doing is understanding natural language data. And understanding natural language data or unstructured data, is quite it's quite a hard problem to solve. So, for instance, the example that sometimes I use is um, if you type on a search engine, show me London restaurants in London except for Italian restaurants. It'll only show you Italian restaurants. So that the entire that task of NLP or natural language processing and semantic analysis is such is is one branch and tranche of uh, of AI, which um, which is the technology we built Jeopardy Watson on, and that's how we played Jeopardy. And then we found so that so the rumor that Watson playing Jeopardy was just googling the answers is not true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Someone sitting behind that. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. Um, that would have been a lot cheaper, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> <Pretty> <laughs> lot but we we took a couple of years to build that system, and of yeah. course, since then, the technology itself is also is also improved. So I think once we built it, we realized that um, industries that have a whole lot of written information or unstructured information is where Watson get at so much value because it's just simply not possible for us as humans going forward to make sense of all that information, retain it, or even if it's any use of our time. So healthcare, banking, in the, particularly in the risk and compliance space, the legal sector, even engineering for that matter, are, are examples of where you can apply those, apply that thinking. Sure. That's, uh, I, I think there's a, an, an amazing amount to, to come through it. And uh, like I say, slight, slightly headline, but uh, interesting stuff ever still. Moving on, we've got an uh, interesting one sort of coming out of Polygon, and, and actually, Devika, coming back, back to you on this one. We've got, watch the first ever movie trailer made by artificial intelligence. So I thought this was quite an interesting one, because we've got Watson creating movie trailers now, and for anybody um, who hasn't seen this, we'll put the link up in the, uh, the show notes. So by all means, take a, take a look at this. It's pretty amazing. It's quite creepy, actually, yeah. <laughs> so, so what's the question? How did this come about, and how has Watson started to be used to just create movie trailers? It seems like quite a, quite a different approach to, to what AI is capable of doing. Is this a, like a gap year for Watson? Was <laughs> <laughs> he kind of a little bit bored? Gets like, good headlines. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like... I'm going to Hollywood and I'm making movies. Yeah. I'm like, I'll be gone for a year, I'll be back yeah. later. Not, not you hit the nail on the head. I think it's more attention grabbing than doing some it's, of the other things. It's Watson Spielberg now. <laughs> It'll come back from Thailand with some dude bro jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's actually similar to some of the other uh, uh, plays that we've done around uh, using Watson to create a dress for someone who wore um, at the Met Gala. It was powered by emotion, some of our emotion APIs and, and sentiment APIs. So the dress would change its colors wow. as the lady or the, you know, yeah. walked through the evening and the Twitter sentiment changed on the on the event. Harsh. This is the world's opinion of me, represented by what I'm wearing. She's wearing a bright red-purple dress. I'm not going anywhere near it. <laughs> <laughs> or as you're talking to her. 
but uh but so, the, so can i can i ask so how how is the movie trailer actually created so so did um did it actually look at the entire movie and then created decided basically what the best you know, synopsis of the movie would be in, in trailer form? So so similar to what you were talking about, historical, looking his, at historical data, it looked at, um, you know, a set of 100 uh, classical horror movie trailers and then broke it down to do a visual sound um, and composition analysis to be able to kind of arrive at Watson's concept of what a good trailer could be. And um, then when then it was fed the movie Morgan, uh, in, in pieces and then it came up with recommended scenes that it thinks you should piece together into a trailer but eventually the work of actually building a storyline behind it was done by a human editor okay. so if you think about the whole human plus um, machine thing even out here it's basically speeding up the time if you want to take this approach of course for coming up with a recommendation or coming up with an answer and the other thing is that what they found was that by doing this approach they basically the human may not have picked those scenes that Watson picked. So in a data sense, if you're using a machine to uncover insights from mass volumes of data, it might be certain insights that we'd be blind to as humans. So it's like a tech-driven best practice guide to trailer making, yeah, in a way. And then, and then you can apply <laughs> that to other industries. There's an cool. interesting sense of irony in this. So if you look at the, um, the, the synopsis for Morgan, so it uh, follows a corporate risk management consultant who has decided whether or not she should kill an artificial intelligence being. So it's, it's a little bit like, like the trailer must be like she doesn't kill it. You know, it's like a bit worried in yeah, uh, exactly. this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but really, you know, really interesting one, and like say an interesting use case for uh, for using what's in there, right, for sure. But uh, moving on, uh, we've got an interesting article that was on VentureBeat. Uh, are chatbots an evolution or a revolution? Jason, what do you think on this one? Yeah, um, so they uh, they really sort of held up the fact that WeChat and you know is often held up as this sort of oh chatbots are already there and chat is already working. Uh, but what's interesting, actually, something we found is while lots of people have heard of, of WeChat, so few have actually ever seen it in action. You know, it's one of those things you read an article about it. Go, oh yes, you know, WeChat. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like, have you ever seen it? No. Ah, okay. And and I guess this article is is holding up that actually a lot of WeChat sort of functionality is really sort of web views. It's having rich data. It's being able to to find where someone is positionally, to have their their payment information, to have their access to a store, and then. To, to bring all of that together into a very simple service. So I guess it's trying to, to put a hole, to puncture some of the rhetoric around chatbots being the future of the, you know, of conversational interfaces. And that, you know, really by releasing a new, I don't know, banking interface that's a chatbot, is that really better than a traditional UI? And in what circumstances is that better? I think there's, there's just something interesting there with, uh, again, another, you know, wave of hype around another new technology and, and how we see it. But I don't know what everyone else sort of thinks on chatbots. I thought it was a wonderful idea. Um, again, it's from 1996, so it shows how old it is, which was uh, AT&T were working on the idea of uh, video avatars. And they filmed a lady who spoke all the different words and vowels in the dictionary that could be imaginable and then automated segments of those videos to match scripts with the idea being that um, you could replace the human video agents with these video avatar agents over time that are chatbots effectively. But it didn't have any emotion. It didn't have any engagement. It didn't really work. 
And it was a nice experiment 20 years ago. I'm sure it will come back. Yeah, and I'm sure we will eventually have video agents that are just bots. But um, where's the soul? Yeah, and I think Avika was talking about there about the natural language processing piece is really critical. Knowing what somebody actually means when they say something is is really, really hard and something humans are very, very good at. Like you said, the one that often tripped up um, traditional ones was, I don't want a mortgage versus I do want a mortgage. Like computers can get very tricked up, uh, tripped up by that one. I don't want a mortgage is a very different thing to I do, or I don't want a loan is very different to I do. Uh, Don't shoot me in the head, please, is very different to please do. (laughs) (laughs) Great job. So I think this whole um, chatbot thing, to, to your point, Jason, people are missing the trick with it is look, WeChat is, is a platform people use. And so people, it's not really about putting all of your services inside of chat. It's about understanding the language people are using. But this comes back to the Turing test, you know, in terms of when you get to the point that you've got sentience in the conversation and you feel like you really are engaging a human with emotion then that will change the game. But we're a long way away from that. I mean, as we said before, how how many years before we get there? It's hard to say, but I think when you look at chatbots in general, I think what they're going to replace is not humans, not human customer service or customer sales, but they're going to replace things like the no reply email. So if you get an email from your bank Mm -hmm. or any company and they say no reply, so it means they can't handle like that kind of communication channel. But if they had a functioning or a semi-functioning chatbot that would read emails and process them, that would uh, allow them to still still give you some sort of interaction. And sometimes you just want to say, I read the statement, I read the email, but I have something to say. And you don't want to go and, and phoning up and actually talking to a person. I have rage replied to a no reply saying, <laughs> I know you're not reading this, but it made me feel better <laughs> that I tell you. <laughs> It did. It dealt with my emotion. And actually, if they'd, if they'd have realized that actually this is a customer whose sentiment is particularly down on us at this moment, please put it into a queue for somebody to do something nice about that customer, like send them a cake, for example, then that would have been, that would have been a lot better. Was it a cake company? Uh, <laughs> maybe. No, I'm referencing something I mean, else. I think for me, chatbot sits in this really interesting space of, I need some functionality, and, and actually, the best ones we've seen, um, you know, within within Eleven FS, we've used a uh, travel service called uh, Panna, which, which isn't a chatbot because there are people behind it, um, but it does have a mixture of text and chat with rich interface elements, and I think that for me is the interesting piece of the space between the thing that you would open up Google on your mobile phone to search for and do something with, versus. And then there's a spectrum between that and I'm going to install an app. And that's quite a big space. And I think where chatbots are really interesting, where they fit in the middle of that, that it's something that I want to do within a particular area. They're not going to install an app, but I still need access to some rich functionality. So it's almost like a combination of of Google with a, a sort of mini app. But, I mean, IBM are doing a, a ton of stuff on chatbots. How, how do you position it? I think back to the point of when you're working with enterprises, it's almost uh, the use case already is narrow, which, uh, which can have pros and cons. I think cons because you may not have access to the kinds of data that you'd need in order to train a chatbot. But the pros are that typically the use case selection becomes narrower in order for it to support a business case because that's what's going to make clients actually buy into this. 
which is why use case selection becomes such an important thing. And we spend much more time actually figuring out what is that use case that can lend itself to a conversation, because not every use case needs to have a conversation. So what are some examples of that as a, as a narrow use and what those use cases might be? So the simplest one to start off with, uh, which we worked with a few clients on, is, is frequently asked questions, um, FAQ, because that just is something that's easier to automate and easier to uh, use a virtual agent for. And importantly, if we're talking in the financial services context, it often doesn't involve mucking around with a lot of the systems, and which brings in the whole whole other issue. But but that would be like a, a starting a starting use case. But testing and learning is another key aspect of building the chatbot. testing and learning. And I think sometimes looking at examples of where it's been done well in the past. So the the challenge a lot of executives have is they they can't see WeChat, which is why they should come talk to us at Eleven FS because we take videos of all of the best applications out there and show them to executives in banks uh, cheap plug done for the day <laughs> that, that was smooth that, that was good and, uh, and like nobody will notice that that was awesome um, moving on to the next one then I think there's a, a sort of continuing this tradition of, of almost kind of having an Apple story of each one but this one's continuing the sort of negative trend if I'm honest with you so we've got in VentureBeat we've got Apple pushes an AI expert hiring spree um, and the article sort of is pretty uh, pretty much a, a, a kind of a negative blow by blow back. Apple have really been left almost completely behind in this space in terms of what's, what's happening. You know, they haven't really been at the party. It feels very sort of un-Apple, um, you know, despite the kind of early investments in Siri in terms of what's happening there. Then I kind of think most people have just given up on it, quite frankly, haven't they? But, um, you know, Apple being behind in this, it sort of feels like a continual slide or... But they have the courage to charge you $159 for Bluetooth earphones. That's innovation. That you're going to lose. Yeah, exactly. I, I find the, 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 the earliest to comment on all of this is always the Android user in the room in terms of sort of doing something. But, uh, yeah, it, it feels like quite a, um, a bizarre one. But the fact that they're trying to sort of get into the game now maybe is interesting. But, um, you know, I'm not sure necessarily that um, we're going to see real sort of significant steps for Apple in, uh, with regards to AI anytime soon. So... Moving on, um, we have an interesting story from The Drum. So this is David Ogilvie's first interview since he died, which is quite an interesting one. So we've possibly not, but Watson and The Drum prove that his ideas are still alive. So this is quite a, I found quite an interesting one as I, as I really sort of delved into it, where basically Watson has ingested all of the interesting documents and, and, and books that David Ogilvie has, has written to really try to pass on some of the, the interesting words of wisdom that has been sort of ongoing past his demise, which is slightly terrifying, but also quite exciting. So, Chris, any thoughts on this? Well, there's this whole idea that on a subscription basis, uh, you can keep in touch with all your dead relatives in the future because they'll have their personalities stored in Facebook AI, you know. So, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might turn some of those voices off. But um, <laughs> is there any truth to the rumor that uh, Watson is building a Chris Skinner to go out and provide consulting services? It's like quite it. easy. It just involves you know a, a, a couple of nodes. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is an amazing idea that they've they've tried to sort of impart all of the 
you know, the wisdom from, from this man who is, you know, a kind of a legend in his space in terms of the, the sort of madman era of, of advertising then, and sort of pass that onto the next generation. Well, so it reminds me of the Johnny Depp film, which I can't remember the name of, but, um, he, he's a scientist who leaves his, uploads his whole personality into the net and cause he's, he knows he's going to die. Isn't that vanilla sky? No, that's Tom Cruise. This is going to bug me now. I know what you mean, but I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, let's, um, we'll add it in, add it in later. But, uh, I mean, it is that whole idea that, again, it's the scary idea of technology in terms of if you do have that ability to store, you know, personalities, um, after people leave this world, then is that a good or a bad thing? I'd say it's really down to how it's regulated and structured and whether you want to keep in touch with those personalities after they've left. And I mean, if someone gets access to your um, history, to your Gmail, your Facebook, can they do it while you're still alive and impersonate you? Or, or can I do it and stop going to work? That would be quite handy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if I could something that could act reasonably, you know, enough to be reasonably convincing type, because I'm erratic at best anyway type thing. So, so what's the difference between the person preventing fraud and the consultant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's normal beach time. Uh, Wasn't there another Hollywood movie? I also forgot the name, but with Ben Affleck, I think. Well, they all, always have like a second body that is basically like like them. The spare. Yeah, exactly yeah. the spare. So you're actually always at home, so that you can't die, right. and your spare duplicate. Yes, surrogate. Yeah. Exactly. We need an AI for memory. Transcendence. <laughs> Transcendence was the Johnny Depp film. Oh, we need to oh. fight Alzheimer's better. Yeah. So, yeah. so do, you think, do you think, from an investment perspective, you see how I'm trying to bring it back to fintech? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> do we have to? Let's just talk about movies. Do you think, from an investment perspective, do you think that you'll be able to pick some super famous um, investor um, in order to, in, you know, have an AI that essentially? approaches investment like that like you know, Warren Buffett Warren Buffett but it, it, so it, will you be able to provide me Warren Buffett to invest my <laughs> not not anytime soon I think but another problem that I would have with that is the assumption that there are individuals that continuously outperform the market because because well it's it's a simple game of statistics right it's a little bit like you know if you if you pick between two, two different outcomes you have a, or any they have a 50% uh, likelihood then, you know, half of us are going to be right, half of us are going to be wrong. And if you do that with like a thousand people and you do it a couple of rounds, at the end, there will always be one who after whatever, a hundred rounds will have picked always the right outcome, right? And even though there was pure luck, it's just the law of numbers to everyone. It will look like, wow, that person really knew everything about it, right? And it's a little bit like, you know, fund managers, basically, and great investors. You can't tell whether it's skill or pure luck because it could also be pure luck because there always has to be someone who always got it right, even if it's just luck. So if you look at the actual statistics behind it, you know, you can't predict where the market's going to go in terms of the exact movement tomorrow based on what's happening today. You just can't. It's a random walk, as we call it. So in that sense, you know, yes, there are great personalities out there like Warren Buffett, but you still don't know for sure whether it is really skill or whether it is just continuous luck. And you know, there's just a key winning thing the lottery. around you can't have perfect markets with perfect knowledge where everyone has all the same knowledge and all the same capability at the same time because you always have distortion in the markets. And even with exactly. this perfect AI world, you'll still have distortion in the markets. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, if we all knew where the markets are going tomorrow, you know, we'd all make that trade. And then again, there's no gain yeah. because everybody does it. There's got to be a loser. So it eliminates itself. Yes. Yeah. Wherever yeah. there's a winner, there's a loser. So it just doesn't work any other way. 
There, there are no rock star investors. It's a shock, shock horror type thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to, to shock everyone. But, but the interesting thing there, and it plays to scalable capital's capabilities, is that we are moving very quickly from the active investors to the passive investment markets. And we've seen a massive shift of funds and assets to the, the passive investment markets exactly. in the last decade. Yeah, I mean, the volume that's now invested in exchange-traded funds, so these passive index tracker uh, products that are very cost-efficient, the volume in those ETFs globally uh, already surpasses the volume that's being managed through hedge funds. So uh, they, they've they really piped up uh, popularity, you know, all, all all around the world. And I think, you know, they're going to, they, even more money is going to flow into ETFs because getting your costs down is one of the main elements to generating better returns. Yeah. And I was listening to another podcast. What? <gasps> you are out? Oh, oh God. I thought I'll tour that. <laughs> you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> That said that, and even uh, they did a test of, you know, over time, which outperforms, obviously they've been doing that for years, but the passive funds do out, kind of outperform the active funds. Yeah, so we, we looked at some data as well. And if you if you look at fund managers, active fund managers, basically over a time period of 10 years, more than 95% of them underperform the market when you include the fees that they generate. Yeah, So some of them might be able to continuously outperform a little bit, compared to the market. But then if you look at average cost of two or two and a half percent for, for most of these fund managers, then this just eats so much into the cost or, or into your return that you end up in almost every case in the longer run. There was a great study a, a few years ago where they had a monkey as a stock picker and he beat yes. 65% of the fund exactly. managers. Very, very famous <laughs> example. Yeah. I love that too. And the monkey is cheaper than the fund manager. Okay. I reckon. Yeah. I guess that's something interesting about that, about the idea of robo advisors, yeah. because to a certain extent that almost plays to this idea of an artificially intelligent system that's then, you know, investing intelligently. But if actually it's, the, it's a passive, you know, investment strategy that wins, it almost uh, it almost makes them a robo advising. You know, again, it's a misnomer. It, it doesn't describe. Yes, it what is. It, does. it is. Yes, it's artificially simplistic. It's artificially doing the sensible thing that's less obvious and less sexy, but it's it's the right thing. Yeah, but but I think that comes back to something you said. Though it's not in these things. It's not about replicating the way that a human would do it. You know, the exactly. one of the beauties of this is the ability to ingest huge amounts of information that, uh, that an individual Absolutely. wouldn't be able to do to then make decisions. Exactly. It's actually not simpler. It is more sophisticated what we're doing exactly. than what a human uh, wealth manager would, would be able to do without the access to the technology and the data that, that we are having. The other thing, and it plays to Watson in this space as well, is that a lot of the banks I meet are saying that they're using AI to supplement their wealth managers, for example, with better advice, support, knowledge of clients' needs and services. And so not only do you get the robo piece, which is what appears to be very personal news to you every day about your portfolio of investments, but when you talk to someone in the bank, they actually know what that you know, who you are with much more intimacy than ever before, much more capability than ever before. So I think in terms of the work we're doing with Watson, there are two ways of looking at it. The one that you just described, Chris, which is more of supporting the wealth manager uh, with key information on the customer so they can service them more effectively. And then at the front end, it's more about democratizing the wealth management service to a much broader set of people, which is a mass affluent, which is what the robo-advisors are typically targeting through the use of some sort of a digital online I, I hate to use the word form filling process which has hopefully got some intelligent capabilities yeah which which is one of the other things that we're very excited about because 
what we can do these days because of cloud computing and because of computing power being so cheap now is that we can actually offer a, a tailor-made portfolio to individual customers that don't have a million or 10 million to invest. But we can offer that to somebody who maybe only has 10,000 or 50,000 to invest. And that's, uh, that's, you know, huge progress also from, from a society yeah. point of view, actually. Yeah. There's a big thing there is, um, when I was in the States, I had, heard Betterment talking about robo advice. I said, mm-hmm. we're not competing with wealth managers. We're competing with no advice. Which yes. is exactly the guy I think it's no targeting. advice yeah. and and people that don't invest basically yeah. but I think it's also we're competing with asset managers yeah so we mm. we're competing with um, a system where you buy a share in the same fund that a hundred thousand other people also have a share in and it's a very very standardized product whereas where I see it going in the future is that everybody's going to have an individually tailored portfolio that for example also reflects your particular tax situation, for example, and that can optimize optimize for post-tax returns, which is something that Betterment in the US already are doing, for example, it's called tax loss harvesting. And it's an area where we are looking at as well, because we also manage our client portfolios on an individual basis. So in the future, we can't do that yet, but we're working on it. In the future, we might also be able to make adjustments that reflect your individual tax situation. And I think that that's another huge benefit. is it tailor-made? Because when the the, um, the robo-advising company that I've spoken to, it tends to come down to how many pots, how many yes. different types of portfolio are there? You know, because tailor-made almost implies that it's everyone individually. Yes. Where it, where the people I've spoken to have said, you know, seven, ten, eleven, yeah. twelve pots, and actually the the questions we ask then describe which pots you know, exactly. you're going. That and that's how we're different. Yeah, that's exactly how we're different. So that's that's not what we're doing. So first of all, we don't define risk in in categories such as low risk, moderate risk, high risk, or a category between one and ten, which doesn't really tell you anything about the actual loss risk in your portfolio. We really tell people how much could you lose in a very bad year, one out of 20 years, for example. So people really know what the actual loss risk is. So that's a big difference, number one. And there are 23 different levels of loss risk that you can pick. But if you and I are in the same loss risk category and we've joined on different dates, we very likely would still not have the same portfolio because it might not be efficient for you to get the same portfolio that I currently have. Or it might not be efficient for me to adjust my portfolio to your portfolio because of transaction costs. That transaction costs involve bid-ask spreads that we can't cover for the client. We cover all the trading costs themselves, but the bid-ask spread is something that the client still, that that hit is, is a hit that the client still takes. So we might be in slightly different portfolios. And then in the future, if you take tax situations into account as well, our two portfolios might differ even more. So it's really not about, you know, standardized buckets of portfolios in our case. Last question coming up. So uh, we've got a, a story from VentureBeat. Uh, this is quite an interesting one. So Chris, you sort of semi-alluded to this one earlier on, but Microsoft chatbot is insulting people again. And apparently this one, people seem to think it's a good thing at VentureBeat, which is quite interesting. So Simon, any, any views on this one? Uh, you've caught me out there. I hadn't read this one. Um, Chris? <laughs> uh, Microsoft, most intelligent characters realize our software only fools teenagers. Anyway. That, 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 that sounds like a, a maths problem you've just thrown at me that I need to decide. <laughs> it's an acronym. <laughs> okay, fine. M- M- M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-C-R-M-I-
it's an interesting one though. The the Microsoft guys seem to be sort of having quite a lot of problems with this, don't they? So it seems to have verged into being a little bit sort of misogynistic, a little bit sexist, a little bit racist in terms of just like real life, the bots that are going on type thing. Yeah, so maybe it is quite accurately. Yeah, it's probably a reflection of humanity. So this thing is um, an app called Your Face, having briefly scanned the website very very quickly, Um, and what somebody's done is is as a chap who looks possibly not too dissimilar from Chris um, has Young sent sexy. a picture of, of himself you. to your face this this chat app and it says you're a human man you're about 48 you've got a grin that knows no decency and a weedy excuse for a moustache <laughs> <laughs> Past realities of the truth. <laughs> I, I, I found to, you know, having looked through this one, I found to kind of get to the point where they're saying, because the, they sort of end on the title of this, that it is a good thing. But I, I think they're trying to get the point across that, you know, humanity is, a, is not about just being straight all the time in terms of, sort well, of doing stuff. There's that it, key thing coming back around how do you bring the sentience being into AI and how do you bring the humanity into AI? And if you do, and that's what Microsoft's experienced twice now, then you, you get the misogynistic, you know, sexist views that rant and rave across the web. And you then have to have some sort of form of, um, obviously managing that process so you don't offend everyone out there. I think most of Microsoft's experiments with AI seem to result in the reason why humans can't have nice things. You know, like the, the first one on Twitter where they were basically sending it random questions and, yeah. you know, being quite horrific to it type thing. It was like... Uh, uh, but, but it learned from the crowd, didn't it? It did. It, did. it became this horrible sort of teenage sort of you know, rebel. Well, specifically, the people that it learned from were trolls. Then they had a lot of anti-feminists. Then they had a lot of Trump supporters. And then a lot of tech people. Well, it's basically so, the internet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying the racist bit came from the Trump supporters, is that right? <laughs> Quite possibly. Who knows? But it, it, yeah, that's if that is Twitter. Yeah. Indeed. And on that note, that's the news for the week. We'll be back very shortly with what impact will machine learning have on the world. But let's hear some messages from our sponsors. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thank you very much to our our sponsors for that message. If we now get into the main event, so if we talk through uh, the question of the day, which is what impact will machine learning have on the world? And that is... I'd say quite a sort of grandioso title in that uh, we're probably not going to get to the absolute bottom of it in the next half an hour, but let's give it a damn good go, shall we? So, shall we, before we get started, just for quick orientation for everybody again, should we just go quick around the room in terms of our, our guests, just to make sure everybody's uh, listening in terms of intently as they should do? So, let's start again. Pivika, hello. Early. I'm Ella. Wonderful. And if we maybe start with kind of a, a bit of a, a basic one for, uh, for for kind of all the people listening, and I think we maybe sort of touched on this a little bit in the news where we were going, and there's there's kind of been huge advances in terms of actually what we've been seeing with, with regards to machine learning over the last three to four years, but what actually is machine learning, and how does this actually differentiate for, for AI? So who wants to have a crack on this one first? So I think the way we use it at Ravelin is we use machine learning as a as a phrase that describes the technology to in which we train a computer to do the work of humans based on data and not and and we contrast it with the, with the equivalent of rules so in the fraud industry most of the products in this area use rules and we say 
well, let's let let's let the computer decide on the rules and and train automatically using data. And that's our description of machine learning. And I mean, we don't we don't really use AI, so we don't have that kind of problem. Is that how you guys sort of see this at Scalable Capital in terms of the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? So I think we're not really thinking about artificial intelligence yet, but I think for for us it's more about the difference between you know what what is a regular algorithm, if you want to call it that way, and what is machine learning. And there we think the main difference is that the machine machine learning goes in without any assumptions or hypotheses; it just looks at the data and tries to figure out a pattern in the data and therefore make predictions based on that, for example. Whereas with when you just use an algorithm, you go in with a certain set of assumptions that you use about it. You know, what process drives the data and the development in the data. So that, that for us is the key difference. And I, and I guess sort of to that point, really, you know, we, we've seen and we've had a couple of good shows recently about, about blockchain and everybody sort of seeing it as the, uh, you know, the sort of panacea that fixes uh, world hunger and uh, cures cancer. But, you know, when people talk about machine learning, what specifically can it start to do specifically in financial services? How, how can it advance the industry forward? So, so I think the way we see it is machine learning being a component within a product. So machine learning it, itself is a component you employ as part of the sort of the engineering aspect of a product in order to, to make the product either more intelligent or sort of, and, and, and machine learning can, for our product at least, encompasses a lot of human minds essentially. So instead of having dozens of customer support representatives that manually do things, we have the same experience just in a machine. And, and that allows a team of, of a very small group of people, two or three, to handle the same workload of a team of, of dozens of analysts. Can banks actually do this, though? You know, obviously from a, a, an external organization perspective, there's a kind of a theoretical approach in terms of what the art of the possible could be. But, you know, for, for decades now, we've seen banks sitting on, on data as a kind of a gold mine that's been untapped. You know, are we actually seeing banks really sort of structuring data in a way that they can actually access in this, this way? Typically, with banks, you face the whole issue around legacy systems, which often acts as a barrier, as you all would probably well know. IBM um, mainframes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably caused by certain technologies, but but at the same time, also, uh, it, you know, using some of these emerging technologies like AI involves like a culture of experimentation, of training, testing, and failing, and I think banks aren't really used to that. And 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 fair to them, I and mean, when you're standing up a payment system, it's kind of hard to learn, test, and fail. So, so it's a bit it's a bit of both in terms of the culture experiment, experimenting, but even the whole legacy system that acts as a barrier sometimes. I think that, if, if I'm honest, I think that's one of my major major fears with AI in banks is actually it's almost like them trying to speed before they can crawl to a certain degree, especially when it regards to actually what's you know the, the the underpinning of that being databases of you know many different types caused by acquisitions of many different companies that don't talk to one another and you know actually that's manifested into a customer experience which is pretty horrific in most instances for simple things like you've got a business account and a personal account and not none of them will sort of uh, none of them will, will sort of meet together so you know I, I personally I can see that as being quite a significant inhibitor in terms of actually bank's ability to do something in this space. I think it's also the governance that they've put around that data historically and, and a lot of the manual process. So you've got all of this personally identifiable information that could potentially be very helpful in providing better services to consumers. 
the way you protect that is with manual processes where somebody has to get sign off from a lawyer somewhere so that they can get access to the data. So they have all this data locked down and it, it's hard to get to for a reason. And rather than building the sets of automated controls to that, it seems easier to do nothing. It's less risky to do nothing. And in fact, in a, a risk averse organization, especially like a bank and especially with data, the temptation is to do nothing rather than to, to profit from the value of that data. Well, but I think we've, some, we've already heard from an investment perspective that sometimes passive is, uh, is good, so maybe doing nothing in some instances is better than doing something. Really. Sometimes it is, but I think the passive investing is is doing something very simple and doing it right. And, and I think yeah. this is what you guys would, would probably advocate for, which is you know understand your data where it is and figure out the the three or four ways in which people can access it and, and automate that process. And once you've done that, you can start building everything from basic analytics all the way up to machine learning for fraud or for investments or around nat- natural language processing and more. Builds on dedicated point which is that i think banks are actually very good with data but they're bad at organization and they have too much silo structures where they're not sharing data but to analyze it effectively across the organization and equally even when the banks are stepping up to the mark you know they have a huge challenge with how do they bring in unstructured external data which is now becoming really important to leverage particularly social media data for kyc for example so i met a new bank in brazil called banco original they're using LinkedIn and Facebook for KYC onboarding. There's no way our banks would ever go in near that stuff. And it's just because they're not geared up to be able to organize themselves for how they've managed that process. And, you know, it's, it's not so much the challenge of the systems, the technologies, um, the capabilities. It's more the challenge of the leadership to actually understand this stuff and, and so deal with it. It, it. There is something where, um, a bit like Jason says, my bank already has an app. You know, my bank already uses social data. Well, yes, it does, but it's using it for sentiment analysis for marketing, which is very different for using it for KYC. Like getting access to that data and uh, then really re-engineering your internal processes, having a new technology doesn't solve the need to be good at change. Very true. One of the things I, I sort of find most interesting about the, the kind of this whole space in terms of machine learning, and, and I think Ali talked sort of about this slightly earlier on about almost not replicating the hangups we have as, as human beings, really, is the, the sort of move to, to sort of unpack how we learn. Uh, you know, if we're trying to teach machines to be able to learn in different ways, um, it kind of feels like the the move from really sort of structured learning into almost that reinforcement learning sense. It, it kind of feels like a bit of a leap, and I'm not sure we're necessarily exactly there. But how do you feel we're how do you feel we're doing it? Maybe not the the Turing test yet in terms of really sort of passing those things, but do you think we're kind of on track to to what our ambitions uh, sort of post us for with regards to machine learning? So I think. We see a lot of, in the academic literature and in the industry, we see these developments about unstructured learning coming from the, you know, the players that have big data. But I think for us, we still value hand, uh, handcrafted sets of, of, of manually labeled data because the amount of fraudsters our clients have is, is very little. We're talking about a few thousands of cases and we want to, to be able to very, to be very confident. So when you train a computer, you like you would train an analyst, you wouldn't show something that is not exactly like a fraudster. So you need actual examples. But we do think that for s- sort of s- smaller problems, we can find um, sort of rich information for unclassified learning and for unstructured data. So if you want to train a classifier to tell you the nationality and you do uh, KYC and you want to try to find the nationality of a person, then you can use Wikipedia as a data source to, to get 
basically a good classifier that can tell you if the person is Italian or English or Portuguese. And, and that's something that uh, the more data you have, the better. And it, you, don't, you don't need labels. You don't need manual work to get a lot of value from this. Do you, you know, I think we've sort of seen a, a bit of a kind of a, a move from a, you know, to, to your point around that. Do, do you think we have reached sort of that tipping point from that sense? I guess, you know, in order to facilitate things like machine learning, we've, we've seen a kind of quite an exponential growth in processing power to allow us to really sort of crunch all through all of those data. But I'm not sure we've necessarily seen the, the leaps that we need to with regards to the, the kind of semantic processing to give meaning to that information. And definitely not in a, a kind of a, a broadest sense, I think, in terms of what people would would sort of think of with regards to sort of mach- uh, machine learning, maybe in very specific purposes like the, the kind of Wikipedia example. But, you know, at what point do you think we're going to get to that sort of tipping point with regards to that semantic processing being kind of at the same scale as we've got with regards to uh, just pure data crunching? So I think this goes back to that same search engine example. It's quite, it's quite hard to even understand us as humans. I mean, Accents is one thing. So, for example, there's a lot of joke around if you put, like, a Scottish accent and can it, you know, can Siri understand it, for example. That's, that's, that's just accents. The guys in the elevator. Yeah, the guys in the elevator video. But that's just accents. But reading between the lines, I mean, we as humans can, haven't really figured out how we understand each other. So trying to, like, create Mm. computers that can make sense of the world in terms of understanding language or understanding images or understanding videos is quite a tough task, which is why there's so many people, bright and intelligent people around the world who are working on it. So I think it's very exciting. I don't have an answer exactly, but it's exciting to see where this will where this will go. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is if you build machine learning in an AI with contextual commerce, geolocation technologies and other capabilities, you know, right now, for example, Facebook's facial rec- recognition is better than the human eye based on their algorithms. So you bring that together with people going into a football stadium or into a sports meeting and then think about, okay, so I can see it's Simon, who I know is a fan of um, everyone but Norwich. And <laughs> we can give you a specific offer to say, as long as you um, you know, buy a Coke today, we'll not give you any promotions about Norwich City. Um, and, and, and I think the difference here is um, before you would have had to have labeled me as that. Um, and yep. that labeling, I think, is the real difference here in that um, before somebody who was writing that algorithm, there was this, you know, in the early days of the Internet, Tim Berners-Lee described the semantic web as where all data would be labeled and it would have enough labels about it that any algorithm could compute it. Yep. But that assumed a human somewhere would have inputted that label. And what we're talking about with machine learning is that we set it up with a bit of correct data and then it takes a much bigger data set and then figures out for itself what the rules are. And we correct it a little bit as it goes but actually it's almost like you set the thing running at the beginning of the running track and you give it a meter and then it runs the rest of the 399 meters itself and i think that metaphor is really helpful for for machine learning and so for me it's about the harmonization of the algorithm and the data um whereas before it was really about you know is it the data what can somebody see in the data write a little algorithm to pull things out of it but if the data quality isn't there with unstructured data you're really harmonizing the two and that's where machine learning comes into its own, possibly. And is that in itself quite an interesting point? Because if computers, at the point where they're, you know, from a machine's perspective, start to learn, you know, not from us in terms of, especially when we start to get in maybe a more kind of ethical debate around 
right and wrong. Maybe we aren't the right people to be teaching right and wrong. So, you know, so actually the, the sense that the machines will, and, and, you know, not wanting to, like, everything that I'm thinking in this does lead to some element of a sci-fi film that I have seen. So I apologize for keep bringing it down to my level. But, you know, on the basis that actually that we, we aren't necessarily the, the, the best people to be teaching right and wrong as, as humans because it, it comes with such ethical biases in terms of our own personal hang-ups in terms of what's there, then I, I, that, for me, is quite a, a breathtaking kind of uh, step in terms of what this capability and, is. And I think we saw that with Google playing Go against an international-level player. You know, there were some moves that it made that a variety of international-level Go uh, you know, players uh, said would, a human would never have made that move. And Wireless had learned through every Go, every documented game of Go that there'd been, is it also played itself you know, millions of times. And so there was this, you know, it, it had strayed the path of, uh, of doctrine uh, of what a good Go move is because it's such a complex game that there are certain uh, trunks of, of, uh, of how you would play that are just accepted as being right, the right yeah. And it did something that hadn't been done in the past. It yes. didn't do something that had been observable in past data. And I think that was the watershed moment. That was genuinely novel and genuinely new. And, and to the ethics point, Ben Evans from A16Z was saying, really, if we is have... That, is that another, another podcast? Yeah, we're like, like, <laughs> well, he also... So there they're also a venture capital firm and he happened to tweet it. But yeah, okay. <laughs> but the, the tweet he put out was that um, eventually it may come to an argument that says humans shouldn't be allowed to drive cars anymore because they kill three million people a year. Like, you can really see that, you know, these self-driving cars kill a lot less people. This is about saving lives. So the argument could really flip on some of this machine learning stuff. When all cars drive themselves and never crash, you don't need car insurance anymore. But we bring it back to the basics, which is Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics, which... You know, as we're talking about the ethics, just read them out. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two, a robot must obey orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And three, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. Really simple. But they're such, they're simple to humans. Yeah. But there's so much to unpack in each of those. Oh, I know. But if, 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 if you build that as, the, you know, the, the basic. But yeah, I, I, think the, I think the stuff around the self-driving cars is really interesting, uh, just around that specific point of you're in a car, a bus pulls out in front of you, and it's a, a bus full of children. And, you know, the car can either make the decision to crash you into the wall or take you off a cliff or smash into the, the bus of school children. And that's going to be a really interesting de- decision. Uh, and some programmer somewhere is going to have to, you know, to look at in, that, in those kinds of situations where it can, you know, through a variety of things, recognise how many people does it kill if it turns out. cars have a by this point, Jackson. Does it kill if it goes right? Uh, I, but I think that, that, that for me, more than the, the sort of Skynet ethics, the ethics of like real action in a real life situation and who does it, you know, how does it weigh those things that actually people don't weigh, you know, they make that instant decision, but it, it has, you know, the world's going in slow motion to a, to, you know, some, to a machine learning thing. It, it, everything's moving very slowly and it certainly has time to calculate potential, you know, outcomes. I think the, the interesting thing about that example is humans will obviously want to know how that algorithm is going, how that self-driving car is going to make that decision. And knowing what that decision is going to make will influence people's willingness to buy a self-driving car, right? If I know 
that that car is going to crush me mm. or sacrifice my life, will I still want to buy that car? Right. And then the question is, if, if then a lot of people say, no, I don't want to have self-driving car because I know that it's going to kill me if required due to some, you know, ethical thoughts that went into the programming, then maybe there will not be any adoption in, in self-driving cars, which then will actually be the worst outcome because self-driving cars, as we know, could save a lot of lives. So you I, might I need to make that decision that yeah. at that point in time seems like it's the worst decision. But if it drives adoption of a better technology, it's maybe the right decision to make wow. as yeah. a programmer. Currently, we have very, you know, for, for, for cars, they have different categories of safety don't they, in terms of doing it. So, you know, arguably, we're in that type of dilemma currently that if you buy a second-hand banger type thing, you're, you're kind of, uh, you know, more likely to be in really significant problems if you have a crash at 70 miles an hour than you would be if you bought, a, you know, a, a cat one or cat eight yeah. or whatever type thing. So, so I kind of think these are almost like sophistications around the around the problem aren't they you know it would be a horrible world to be in that the more expensive the car purchase that you had the less likely it was to you know you, you spend 100 grand in a car it's going to kill all those kids but you'll be fine correctly if only we had this AI too. in 2008 it could have prevented quite a lot of uh, disastrous yeah, things it's, it's right now it's the opposite I mean if you have more money you can already today buy a car with more safety features yeah. so it's already yes. uh, so there's a great new book that's just come out called Homo Deus by Professor Yuval who wrote the book Sapiens and it's all about these scenarios of the future and part of the prediction of that is that if you've got money you can design your next generation of human because you can do genome variations and other experimentations which others can't afford and we'll end up with this superhuman race of people who have money and the rest of us being completely irrelevant which is a rather <laughs> dismal vision of the future, but um, an interesting book. I've been told worse, I have to say. Um, so I guess bringing it back maybe then to, to sort of enterprises and specifically within you know financial services where we, we all sort of work, um, you know, there's a bunch of kind of fun quotes out there about, uh, you know, MLB really the, the new electricity with regards to kind of enterprise services. So how do you guys see this? Obviously, I'm, I'm sure given we all sort of work in this space, we, we all sort of see it revolutionising what's happening. But you know, how do we sort of see this hitting the enterprise? And do we think it's in the same vein as where our predictions are for, for people like blockchain? Do we sort of see this being a horizon piece or do you see it being a absolutely it's it's the type of thing people should be investing in today? So I think what's in the, our proposition for financial services is quite straightforward. So one is about how can you use cognitive or AI technologies to transform the front end of customer engagement, so in the front office. And the most obvious example of that is the chatbot or the virtual agent, which does have a fairly simple and direct business case, which is why it's probably got a stronger adoption and creating more buzz. And then the second the second area is how can you use cognitive technologies to support decision-making within deeper layers of the organization? So for the expert, that might be the asset manager or the wealth manager or... The, the contact center person or the underwriter or the claims professional, you name it, but supporting decision-making. So a few examples that, that, are, that are interesting to me in particular is the work that, that we're doing in risk and compliance. So where we're training Watson to understand banking laws and regulations so that in different countries so that it can help banks deal with or financial services organizations deal with compliance and, and importantly the delta or the change in, in regulations. Which is, which is quite interesting. And another one is in, in the area of insurance or even in banking. Typically, 
a lot of financial services companies aren't very good at knowing who we are as a customer and following us through our lives. So changes in life events and things such as those. But using cognitive sort of capabilities and AI sort of capabilities, you can kind of you can kind of transform that and kind kind of be with that customer and really know that customer through their um, through their lives. Um, so some of the work that we're doing with Swiss Re um, is around the space of creating a center of a cognitive center of competency so that we can embed cognitive and different workflows and applications, starting with uh, with underwriting. Okay, but so. But are we, are we kidding ourselves here about decision support? Because in the end, the big business case for this is getting rid of people. You know, if we're trusting a car with driving itself and we can, you know, code a hundred thousand, a million loads into, uh, you know, into a decision engine, then surely that's going to be better than an underwriter, far cheaper and lead to a, you know, very different organization. So, so I guess I'm kind of like testing this, but. Uh, I can imagine that to sell it to bank employees, it would be great that this is decision support and you'll work together with your robo counterpart, you know, and then a few few months down the line, unfortunately, robo has taken your job. <laughs> I, I put it in a different context, and it's to what we were saying with Ella earlier is that, um, by way of example, if you were going into hospital for a heart operation, let's say, and you were told you can either have the human doctor who's actually one in a thousand times made a small mistake, but no one's died yet, thank goodness. Or you can have the robot doctor who's actually done a million operations and never had a mistake. Which one would you choose? And that, to me, is the passive versus active investment review, which is saying, I'll go for the passive guys because I've got confidence that they'll get it right more often than the other guys. Yeah, I think, I think one other example that we frequently use um, when people are concerned about you know an algorithm making investment decisions for them is – you know, think about a, a plane, like a modern big passenger plane. I, d- I don't think anyone would feel comfortable these days knowing that there was no autopilot in there. Yet we also wouldn't feel comfortable knowing that there's no actual pilot in the plane. So we basically want both, right? And that's how we think about, you know, algorithms or machine learning. You typically would want to have a combination of both. You still need the human element for oversight, for, you know, training an algorithm, um, you know, also for, for, you know, being just a counterpart that people can contact if they have a question and so on. So you will, that will, that will always stay there, we believe. But there are just some things that an algorithm can do better because we, d- we don't have computers and chips in our, in our brains, unfortunately. So we just can't process data that well. But we have all the other things that a computer doesn't have. I think that's, that's very similar to our approach uh, in the sense that we, we want to complement the, uh, especially our, many of our clients are, are, especially in the on-demand area are startups and they're building their organization. So they don't have the problem of, of uh, legacy systems or, or, or staff. They have to build an organization and have to acquire the software to do it. And we, with our data from our client base, can offer this big data that can power the training of the, the classifier we offer that can sort of substitute uh, the creation of a huge team, but making a very small team very effective, but still making the API side of the things really fast. So in, in 50 milliseconds, you get an answer. But if you want to review it manually and understand this person's history, you can. And people do that, do both. And I also think uh, coming back to the cost efficiency topic, I also believe that there will be lots of, you know, revenue generating opportunities from using machine learning or, or algorithms. Because if you, if you could, for example, look at a traditional behavior of your clients, 
over the past whatever 20 years or so, you might probably be able to predict that certain people at a certain point in time in their lives will be interested in the following products because typically at that age they get a mortgage, you know, whatever, at the age of their children here they typically take out money because they need to fund their education or whatever. So you could anticipate their needs and come up with, you know, suggestions for suitable products which would then be a revenue-driving angle, actually, which helps you grow your organization, potentially hire more people as well. So I'm not arguing that the cost efficiency aspect isn't there, but I think there is is another element to it, which is more about, you know, generating more revenue and, and actually also just selling better, you know, more suitable products to clients as well, which they obviously benefit from. Do you guys think, um, you know, as, a, as an industry, really, that, that sort of AI and natural language processing and all of these things just suffers from a, you know, as I have been rather fanboy all the way through this process, quite frankly, in terms of just a complete lack of understanding in probably the key decision makers within the organizations who are really needing to kind of get this. You know, we're, we're sort of seeing this in the blockchain space heavily where, you know, the, there's a, like a complete absence of, of tech understanding and, you know, kind of mathematical capability in terms of getting these things. So it is the problem in this space that it isn't one thing, it's hundreds of different layers and disciplines of, of pieces, you know? Definitely. I think education is such a big thing. I think a lot of the work we do is really educating our clients in terms of what is this? What are we talking about when we say AI? What is? What are we talking about when we say cognitive computing? And then the other thing also goes back to experimenting with these technologies does require that visionary person or that leader that, leader that can actually take that leap of faith on, on trying this out. I think more so we'll start to see organizations thinking about their own talent and how can they kind of grow their own talent pools in ways that are comfortable using these technologies and comfortable working with these technologies, um, which is which which in turn might see jobs change and jobs transform rather than being rather than being replaced going back to to Jason's point. It's also oversimplifying a, a little bit because you've got the, the CIO and their organization that's there to try and inhibit innovation and change because it's a pain in the backside. Um, and in maybe, some ways they have no specific names of CIOs. No, <laughs> no. Um, you know, but um, a lot of it's actually saying we've got these new technologies, aren't they wonderful? And the CIO who's actually the privy into the organization for those technologies saying very good, but not ready for prime time yet. I've got too many other priorities. The business people not really being engaged until they see someone else doing it, at which point they have bang their CIO on the head and say, we should be doing this. And to a large extent, the point of when are these technologies ready for prime time? Most technology takes about 30 years to get ready for prime time. If you look at anything, I mean, we were talking about mobile banking in the 1990s, but it didn't really hit the main bank spot till 2010. And I think for most of the technologies, and these have been around for a long time, as I was saying earlier, it's going to take 10, 20, 30 years before they're robust enough, reliable enough, and ready for the bank's executives, including the CIO and the CEO, to say, yeah, we can see this being deployed and used. Generational change needed at the top from the sounds of it. And it's it's interesting to me because... These technologies clearly seem to have a material benefit. You've described a, a lot of business cases there um, that would be applicable, um, that can be described in terms of generating revenue, reducing fraud, um, you know, understanding compliance better, which is absolutely what the, the banks need and want and, and, and would absolutely get their heads around. But I think there is this, there is this gap between, you know, what the technology can do and the complexity. And as a species, we hate complexity. 
Because often what you, what an executive wants is the noble lie that, rather than the inconvenient truth, which is this is actually really complex and really hard. It can do some amazing things, but you're going to have to put some time and effort into understanding it and getting it right. And you're going to have to do it well. You're not just going to have to push a button and hope it works. Time, effort, most have just got money. But, um, but I wonder if this then connects into that whole sort of trends around APIs, because in one way of doing this is to simplify it and black box it to say that actually I'm going to send to to you my data, you're going to send me back whether we should make a loan to that person, and whether it's a team of underwriters behind that, or artificially, you know, intelligent machine learning capabilities. So I guess you're rattling, you know, there's a, there are APIs for businesses to use to start to leverage your capabilities, is that right? Yeah, so, so we, we are a software as a service company. So when you integrate with us, the way we work is you send us the data, and as you send the data... We, on the back end, do a whole lot of um, processing and we use cloud computing to, to scale the operation. So you don't really need to make an upfront investment at any stage. And you get immediately, uh, days into the integration, you get results. And we see this, obviously, this in other other domains as well. So image recognition, Microsoft with Azure and Google released their API. So if you want to scan a document, you don't really need to build uh, your OCR technology. You can just send a document and get the API results. And so similarly, we we just allow the developers who are sort of the, the first client of our product a very smooth integration process. The documentation is smooth and we provide them with help. And um, I guess the I guess the issue slightly with black box technology sometimes is from a regulator's perspective, right? So where we sort of start to stare into you know consistency, repeatable actions, we need to kind of get to a point where the, the regulator is probably advanced enough to really understand how that can affect. But if you think about it, nearly everything inside of a bank came from a vendor somewhere. It just happens to be sitting in their data center and they have some of their own developers that they've hired to configure it, right? So, I mean, ultimately, whether it sits on Azure or um, Bluemix or wherever it sits, uh, it doesn't really matter so long as somebody in within your organization came up with the IP at some point, you know, or, or at least some of the underwriting IP or some of the financial IP. Uh, and it's about focusing on what you're good at. And, and a lot of banks want to be technology companies at the moment, but is that they're good at is that where the skill set is whereas if you look at the car industry what they've gotten very good at is assembling cars so car manufacturers used to be very very good at um, sourcing rubber and managing steel and they had a steel pipeline and banks are still in that world where they they build everything themselves and they wonder why it costs a lot of money whereas actually if you can take the people who are best at what they do at fraud prevention and at natural language processing use their capability for what you need it to for your use case because hopefully as an organization you understand your customers well enough to be able to understand your use case and then plumb that into the best technologies that are already out there but i guess we've just seen sort of regulated come around to cloud use in general of your own you know, your own systems out north of, you know, I've got their operate their core banking running on AWS. I guess it's a step further to say, actually, we're going to send data via APIs out to third parties to do things. I mean, Devika, are you see, uh, what are you seeing in terms of uh, in terms of Watson as a service yeah. and regulators' view of financial institutions sending you data and receiving receiving things back from them? Yeah, I mean, more than the regulators, it's the financial services companies themselves that hesitate as soon as they need to send any PII data onto the cloud or onto a public platform. So that's definitely a, a hurdle. But I, I must say that there are a lot of companies out there that are kind of getting past 
beyond it and willing to kind of experiment with trying to with trying to do exciting stuff in this space which is why i mentioned in the virtual agent space the use case that most often people want to start off with is any anything that doesn't involve sending private mm. customer data mm. which is great but then it, it may not be able to do all the intelligent stuff exactly so how do you get around with that okay then we can work with banks that do have apis I love the idea of Watson as a service automated banking intelligence wasabi. Add spice to your banking experience. Yeah, and that's that spicy. You know, we probably better wrap up. So I think we probably could go for hours and hours and hours on this topic. So uh, thank you to all of our guests for for joining us. Maybe what would be good to do is give a give a little bit of shout out where these guys can can see you. So where where can our uh, listeners find more information about yourselves? Yeah, so our website is scalable.capital without .com because a lot of people, when I tell them my email address, say, oh, it's scalable.capital.com, right? I'm like, no, it's .capital. <laughs> so it's just scalable.capital. We also run, you know, webinars, uh, quite a lot of them. So you can subscribe to our newsletter and then get invited to webinars. We're also running a couple of investor seminars where you can see us uh, and talk to us and, and convince yourself that we're not robots. We, ha- we have another one coming up at the end of the month in London well, and, well, and more I, across the country as I've well. I've met you. I can see you. I can confirm to everybody you are not a robot. We're <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what kind of people like uh, what what's your target customer you know how would i know that i would, i should come and invest with scalable capital yeah so so we're really going after smart professionals that know that they should invest their money yet are clever enough not to get ripped off by some of the providers out there that are just charging too high fees uh, so typically people that are too busy to do it themselves that want to outsource it to a professional but they don't have whatever the 10 million to ask Goldman Sachs to do it for them. So these are the types of people we're, we're really going after. So mass, mass affluent, smart professionals, I would say. We're really not going after the very low end of the spectrum, people that, that we would need to convince that they actually didn't need to invest. We're rather going after people that know they should invest and are a little bit frustrated with what's out there right now. That's good. So, um, so Ravelin is, is actually aimed at any company that accepts payments, uh, mostly on demand co- companies, but most also uh, e-commerce or uh, gaming or any other company that uh, has a fraud problem or think they're going to have a pro- fraud problem once they start scaling. You can find more information on, on Ravelin.com or follow our Twitter account at RavelinHQ for more information. Awesome. Watson's open to all. You can find more information on the Watson Developer Cloud, where you can find information on the set of services. Quick mention, we just launched our conversation service, which allows you to more easily build your chatbot and virtual agent. And to kind of celebrate the launch, we're having a hackathon on 6th and 7th of October at the Rainmaking Loft in London, which is open for everyone to come and join and register. You can get more information on my LinkedIn profile or Twitter. Awesome. Thanks very much, guys, for for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us back in what is turning out to be almost an AI marathon in uh, FinTech Insider terms, which is awesome. There's so much amazing things to be talking about in this space that uh, I think we could probably go on for days and days. What we've looked to do in this this last segment is get uh, Davika back. And uh, and again, I, I think I'm probably mispronouncing it in any sing- single way <laughs> in terms of your name. I know. I, I You know, I, I, Davika, Davika? Davika. 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 You think I'd be able to, to do this given my name is David on this sense, but actually Davika was Davika? 
Davica, right? Yeah. I'm nailing this now in terms of doing it, but you, you were kind enough to, to only after kind of a year of me getting your, your name wrong in terms of pronunciation, point it out to me in a very sort of nice and sweet way. So I, I appreciate you being so kind and, and considerate to not do it, A, in front of a bunch of your, your colleagues and, uh, B, uh, I'm not really sure entirely why I'm bringing it up on a, on a podcast for all these people to listen to, but thousands um, of listeners. Indeed, like clean slate. <laughs> I feel I've got it off my chest. We can kind of maybe move on in terms of doing it. So I think what we're going to try and do is uh, unpack a little bit more about what it is that uh, IBM and, and Watson are, uh, are doing and also learn a little bit more about, about you, um, not just the pronunciation of your name clearly, but actually how you got into to working in the Watson division. I think, you know, a few interesting things up the front here that I found uh, entertaining. Um, I didn't realize this, and, and I think, Jason, was it you who pointed this one out in terms of the, the kind of how reference? Yeah, I, I said to David last night as he was looking through sort of IBM and Watson stuff that uh, Hal, the evil robot in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, was actually based on IBM. And the letters H-A-L are actually one letter back from IBM. And I think that's just, you know, the fact that you're now into Watson, it, it just leads us on that path. <laughs> so uh, I guess we should first talk about... Are you actually running any program involving evil robots or evil intelligences? I'm afraid, Jason, much to your dissatisfaction, the answer is no. <laughs> well, that's, uh, it's both good and disappointing to hear that, I guess, in terms of doing But you wouldn't it, but... tell me, would you, even if you had? Yeah. Wink now if it, oh, okay. okay. Well, you'll have to figure out what that was anyway. But, uh, I think the other thing that I kind of found really interesting when the, the whole sort of origin of, of where, you know, particularly the Watson thing comes back is the, the kind of Jeopardy quiz show in terms of where it was. And it, it feels like it was ages and ages ago in terms of doing it, but that was only back in 2011, wasn't it? I kind of almost, you know, there's a few things that I kind of find amazing over it. Firstly, that they had absolute sort of show champions that, uh, you know, Watson beat in terms of doing it, but also the fact that Watson won a million dollars in terms of that, that show. So what was it that Watson did with that million dollars in terms of doing it? Did it kind of reinvest it in itself to become more intelligent? <laughs> <Shopping>. or <laughs> Yeah, because that's what I would have done. But, um, you know, it, it seems, um, what, what does a, you know, a kind of a, a an artificial intelligence uh, robot do with, uh, with a million dollars? So donate it to charity. Is that what, what happened? That is exactly yeah, what happened. It's an amazing thing to do. So, so, but I guess I'm interested in the history of that because, you know, while Chris was saying earlier that AI and machine learning you know, has, has had a very long, you know, decades of history. It wasn't until 2011, 2012 that things really started to seemingly pick up, you know, um, new algorithms, new ways of working that, that seemed to take old problems that needed tens of thousands of li lines of code and simplify them down that, you know, to, to much smaller areas. But, and it interests me how that translates into we're going to, you know, we're going to enter jeopardy and win. You know, do you have any sort of, what's the organizational history of how, how Watson came to being? Because it interests me not only for that, but Watson as a brand is, is a really interesting sort of, uh, group of services and products, I guess. Yeah. So I think, um, IBM as a company has a rich, uh, history and a strong history of research and development. So, you know, we've, we've done these moonshot. Uh, moments of actually landing people on the moon or beating, you know, the world champions in chess. Literal moonshots. That's literal yeah, awesome. moonshots. Um, and, and we inv invest about six billion in, in R and D annually, you know, have a record of having like 
five Nobel Prize winners, I think, wow. um, and and a pay and and a, and a record patent um, holding patent as well over over time. So it's it's definitely a serious investment that we make in different areas of technology with serious results. So some of the announcements that we've made recently, not just in in Watson, but around other areas of cognitive computing like synapse chips, which is basically taking cues and inspirations on how we organize data in our brains. And then the stuff that we're doing around quantum computing uh, and making it available on the cloud for other data scientists to share expertise are all examples of the kind of leap uh, that we've taken from a research perspective of really investing in growing these techno- these technologies. Well, it's a, it's an amazing investment on IBM's part in terms of doing it. And it's, you know, I, I was kind of in looking through this stuff, I was kind of searching around. It's been kind of early 70s that IBM has been sort of investing in these things. There was, was some, you know, amazing YouTube videos of, of uh, Newton, which for anybody who doesn't know is the, the kind of physical manifestation of the artificial intelligence capability. And it's, you know, going back to almost the Jetsons capability, you know, the uh, metal Mickey kind of following people around the room and doing things. But, you know, as we've advanced and to, to Jason's point, it feels like we're really at the point where, you know, the um, the reality is kind of catching up with where the science fiction is. And that must be hugely exciting. You know, you you kind of must be working in pretty much the most exciting department in the in the organization, aren't you? Definitely. And we joke about how when we played Jeopardy, you know, the, the computing power or system that was powering Watson was the size of a room, but now it's the size of a pizza box or now it's basically a set of services available on the cloud, which is something that wasn't wasn't there and couldn't probably have been foreseen in, in 2011. So how did that, how did that win and the technologies around it? You know, the being able to understand the language to look, to do the semantic sort of, um, lookup to then go and fetch the information. How does that, how did that commercialize? You know, what, uh, what, what service, how have we got to the services that you've got today? I guess is the question. I think when we, when we played Jeopardy, probably I wasn't there at IBM at the time. So I wouldn't know exactly the decision making that went into it, but I think that even we didn't know. How will this change and how can this impact? I mean, essentially, we're trying to commercialize AI technologies, which really hasn't been done before at scale. So it's also new for everyone, including ourselves. And our go-to market has been evolving over time. But all we knew was that when we, when we had Watson, we knew that it can do a few things really well. It can understand and read data at massive volumes, particularly unstructured data and textual data. And why that's important is because data is a new oil, as we all know, and there's tons of it and there's tons of it coming in different forms. So not just digital text, but like videos, images, etc. So how can you take all that data, reason on it, like deductive reasoning, and then learn from it over time? Those Those three kind of capabilities, the immediate kind of attention was brought on by healthcare for obvious reasons, because it has so much information and data out there. So how can you use a system to kind of speed up that research? And then we gradually saw parallels in the financial services sector, and which is kind of the next sector where we went into. And I think these two tend to remain our core in terms of a lot of focus. And then we've gone into the public sector and some of the other sectors that are now kind of catching on in terms of engineering, industrial sectors and 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 those. But alongside what we've realized is also is that the way we deliver technology has changed, right? So you deliver it software as a service, deliver it on the crowd. And 
and the co-conversation on APIs, it makes it so much more powerful if you can put it in the hands of everyone. So we started by making it available largely for our ecosystem, for our startup community um, and some of our SMEs, uh, the small and mid-sized companies. But gradually we realized that this is the way going forward for everyone. So how can we put speech understanding, language understanding, visual understanding in the, in the hands of everyone? Which I guess leads really really well into a into the conversation of what is Watson? Because on one hand, I think it makes uh, AI, machine learning, you know, cognitive computing accessible to people who might be scared by you know by talk of specific algorithms or specific uh, areas of data science. But on the other hand, people who are pretty technical might turn around and say, well, you know, but what is it? What's really under the hood? Like, what what can I buy? Um, in terms of you know services and products, so maybe can you talk a little bit about about that? Sure. What are the what are the offerings beneath that umbrella of Watson? Yeah, sure. So so one is the set of services or APIs that are available on the cloud. So what, um, if you go on to Watson Developer Cloud, you'll find a set of over twenty five uh, twenty eight services all around speech uh, language understanding, speech understanding visual understanding and then analytics. So those kind of four broad buckets, which if you think about it, let's, if you give a scenario of a, of a chatbot, because we love chatbots, you're not just using our language understanding capabilities to build a chatbot, but then you're adding in sentiment analysis, emotion analysis, or personality insights to kind of give the chatbot more of a personality, or for example, be able to use a chatbot to detect, oh, this person I'm talking to is angry, let's hand over to a human agent, for example. But similarly, visual recognition can come into play as well. So that's so those are a set of services that we're kind of using in a way of that, here, use your set of services to build your cognitive or Watson-powered application or Watson-powered product. And so uh, are there a set of services beyond that that then get industry vertical specific? Because I assume that for healthcare, you could get into diagnosis. For uh, for financial services, you could get into underwriting. Um, do you sort of go beyond that? And and how does that work? So we've then we've got another um, some other Watson technologies that are specifically around really doing rich content and textual analytics which as a concept has been around for a while, but you have a lot more data to play around with to actually get more insights. So we plug that into our Watson APIs and some of our other machine learning capabilities, which is what is eventually that's used to, for example, give a deeper understanding of the customer, which is what's used in order to give insights for the underwriter to be able to make a better decision, or for example, for the oncologist to make a better decision in the healthcare, in the healthcare setting. So I think that's what we're seeing even within our own organization is that since as we've made it available as a platform and we have a set of a few core technologies, we're, we're trying to infuse these capabilities into a lot of our IBM products, not, you know, using Watson, but probably using it in the marketing area or using it in the security area, for example. So are, are there a few examples that you can share of sort of concrete uh, use cases or customer stories where it's actually being used at its best? Sure. So in... In, in healthcare, which was, I guess, our first sector, we trained, and which is our first use case, we trained Watson in the field of oncology with the Memorial Sloan Kettering Center. And there we trained, Watson basically ingested all the research available on oncology so that in, in a doctor scenario, it can probably advise better treatment outcomes and patient outcomes 
for for the patient. So that's something that's now being used in a hospital in Thailand and is recently also will be adopted in um, a healthcare facility in India, which is great because what it's doing is democratizing the availability of such expertise across different markets. So tell us a little bit more about the types of difficulties that you encounter when you're talking to big financial institutions about this, because obviously there's a, a lot to sort of take in for these guys. Yeah. I mean, I think because of our strong history in, in working with enterprises, I mean, we're lucky to have open doors in terms of talking about technologies like this. And usually, I think even financial services players are quite excited to learn about the work we're doing with, with Watson. Now, in terms of actually adopting it, some of the common difficulties that might pop up would be around, you know, if we're using this, how will this play into all our systems core banking systems, how will this affect, how will this disrupt some of the existing projects that we have, which tend to be the typical challenges when you're trying to adopt very innovative technologies. And I think at that point, it's really about finding that sponsor who has a vision and who can take the leap of faith in actually investing and experimenting with technologies. Um, and, technologies and typically, like who is that in the banks? Mm-hmm. Is it the CIO? Is it the CTO? Or, you know, I guess increasingly we're seeing CEOs take a much more sort of, uh, you know, ironically sort of decision-making role in this type of exercise. So where, where are you guys sort of seeing the main traction? So it could be actually either any of those really. It really varies across across different companies. But yes, it would tend to be a senior stakeholder within the organization. And yes, it could be the CEO, it could be the chief digital officer or, or the CIO as well. And how can banks really sort of prepare themselves, I guess? You know, this is uh, a bit of a journey to sort of embark on, isn't it, in terms of doing it? And I, I think mainly that's down to the sort of perspective, as you say, that people sort of perceive this as a complete change of direction in terms of what they're doing, when really that isn't always the case, is it? So how can banks prepare themselves for AI? Well, you won't know until you don't try, is is what I think. But definitely educating themselves in the space is important. I think the the danger out there is spending way too much time educating yourself. And the space is so fast moving that you could spend years trying to understand AI and you're not going to get anywhere. So what, what really, what's the point in doing that? If you're going to, I don't see the value in really doing a two year market assessment on this space because the landscape's changing in terms of players, the landscape's changing even in terms of, in terms of technology. So really being able to almost identify quickly use cases that add value to your business. Now that doesn't necessarily have to be a cost play. That could even be a revenue play or that could just be an innovation or an investment play. But identifying those use cases and then getting someone to champion it is quite, is quite important and really getting to just experiment with it, train and test it because ultimately, since a lot of these technologies rely on data and training, you're only going to get results the more you train it. So it does require some amount of effort on, on the organization's part. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's same with so many different subject matters we come across. It's, uh, you know, there's only so much you can learn academically in terms of doing it and the the sort of learning while doing mentality, especially in something that uh, really sort of changes the dialogue that you have with your customers uh, is absolutely the way to go from uh, from our perspective. Maybe if we, we sort of change gears slightly in terms of where we're going, tell us a little bit more about, about you. You know, obviously we've learned a lot about uh, Watson and Newton and kind of all of the things that have kind of come from, from there. But how did you get into working at IBM? And, and then I, I guess, you know, looking at your, your background, you worked at IBM for a little while before you moved into the Watson team. So tell us a little bit, little bit more about uh, how, how did you get to here? 
Sure. So, so I was actually doing my master's in the U.S. at the time, and I met some colleagues who were working on the Smarter Cities initiative that IBM IBM also has been running for a couple of years. And I found that incredibly fascinating, A, because I get to work on it, and then B, I get to probably work in different cities. So eventually, I got selected into this leadership uh, development program at IBM that has given me the opportunity to work in a few different transformational areas within the company. And Watson has been my longest stint. I think as soon as Watson was formed as a independent business unit, which was only about two shy of two years ago, I knew that I was like, I want to be a part of this unit where you're, as I mentioned previously, you're getting to commercialize something that has never been commercialized before. So it's almost, uh, you can think of it for the lack of a better word, a startup within an organization, even though IBM's not a startup. But it's 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 quite exciting to be in, in be in that space. Yeah, well, you know, a, a startup with the uh, you know the the investment potential of IBM behind it can do pretty amazing things, can't it? Which is uh, a nice place to be for sure. Yeah. And I, I guess, um, I mean, I, I came in and spoke to your team well, a week ago or something. They loved it. Excellent. Um, it surprised me, I guess, how small it is. You know, in terms of the number of people and there were, what, I guess, 20, 30 people in the room. You know, what's the size of Watson, like, across the world? Where, where's most of the work done? You know, where does it, where does it live? Um, good question. Actually, I'm not really up to date with the, the latest numbers, but a lot of the, in terms of where the work is done, we're focusing a lot on the science behind Watson. So, which tends to be the development, the development of the technology right from, the technical side, but even from the product management side. So we're focusing a lot on strengthening that part of the organization. And then, of course, you have the go-to-market teams, but but those are more lean because mm-hmm. ultimately it's the product that needs to lead lead the way. So a lot of focus on on the science behind behind Watson. Mm. And I guess lastly, and this is probably the, the the question that you know, anytime anybody does anything in AI or uh, machine learning or robotics that we're doing, there's there's always the sort of outrage of will we all be out of jobs in 10 years time and you know will the robots be ruling the roost in terms of where we're going how do you see this one panning out the inevitable question and i love how that's your last question (laughs) (laughs) Um, i'd like to leave them with fear or uh, hope one of those two and you're really hoping fear right and I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I could kind of all, again, all of my sci-fi fantasies are coming true type thing. So, uh, you know, a little bit of fear would be good. I hate to disappoint you. I'm going to go back to my same rhetoric as the, as the start. I, the view, I think the view that at least we're developing technologies at Watson or Watson itself is all around how can you use this to assist people better? So how can you use it to help what we do better in our day to day lives versus like replacing people or replacing jobs? I mean, when the ATMs came about, for example, I mean, jobs weren't really wiped out. Uh, they might transform, but I, I wouldn't know how they would transform. I mean, you guys are doing all the thinking behind that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess we better get to, to work on figuring that one out then, Jason. We'll, uh, we'll get right to it. Davika, thank you very much. Did I pronounce that right that time? Almost no. there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I will keep practicing and I'll get back to you on that in terms of doing it. But thank you very much for, for joining us and, uh, for having and, uh, bearing with me in terms of my pronunciation. So, uh, at that point, we'll leave you there. Great. Thank you. Well, that's it. We've come to the end of what turned out to be a marathon episode 110. Thanks again to all of our guests, Davika, Ella, and Arelli. 
Coming up for you next week, we are talking about innovating in big banks and have an absolutely killer lineup. We have Neil Cross from DBS, Shamir from BBVA and formerly Simple Bank, Mariano Belinki and Pascal Bouvier from Santander, and a longtime friend of the show, Anna Herrera from the Wall Street Journal. But that's it. That's all we have for you now. Catch you next week.